She was sexually abused, my wife, from ages 8 to 12. There are consequences to abuse. She didn't have the courage to tell me till 18 years into our marriage. I wasn't safe enough. When she told me that she had been abused and told me some of the details of that, I suggested she get in the sexual abuse recovery group, which I think has served many women well. Don't hear me knocking that. But Rachel's response was, I don't want to be in the group. And I thought she was a scared and defensive. And I said, why? And she wasn't scared and defensive. Her thought was this. I don't want to be with a group of women whose identity is an abuse victim. That's not my identity. I'm God's beautiful daughter. And by the way, I've been sexually abused. And that's not an incidental thing. It's a horrible thing. But it's not a central thing. What does it mean for a woman, whether you've been sexually abused or had a father who never celebrated your 13th birthday or were put down and had your first boyfriend in sixth grade and he didn't like you and you felt rejected and whatever your story might be, what do you do now as an adult? You want to grow into the deepest part of your God-revealing femininity, but there's a fear. So what do you do? Well, here's a little way I want to use this overhead just for a second. C.S. Lewis wrote a book. Shortly after his wife died, you know the story, Shadowlands, and the book was called A Grief Observed. And in that book, he said this. He said, um, in the pain that he was feeling after being a, in a man in his 50s before he married Joy Davidman, and, and then they had a, a, a very rich, unusual marriage, and then she developed cancer and had remission. They took their first trip out of England together and came back, and the cancer came back, and she died. And shortly after her death, he wrote a book observing his own grief, And he said these words in the book, many other wonderful words, but this is the sentence that stood out to me. He said, you never know how how much you believe in the strength of a rope until you're hanging by it over a cliff. That led to a little picture that's occurred to me. There's a woman standing on top of the edge of a cliff. Let's call this the cliff of safety. I don't want to take any risks. I don't want to ever hurt again like I was hurt back then. How many of you, this is both the men and women, how many of you as kids made a strong resolution at some point in your life, I will never allow myself to be hurt again like that. There are a number of you, I would think. I sure did. Over something other than sexual abuse. Rachel probably did it over sexual abuse. So now I'm going to stay on top of my cliff of safety. I found my way of relating that keeps me safe. I found myself able now. I have certain talents, certain skills, and I've learned a way to manage my life so I don't hurt very much. And now you're leading not the Christian life, but the managed life. And the two are incompatible. But you're leading the managed life to make sure that nobody can get to you and you, you, you're, 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 you're pretending in certain ways, you're not revealing who you really are, you're handling things in certain ways that keep you safe. What's your relational style that keeps you on top of the cliff of safety? Well, one thing you know, you're, you're, you're terrified. If you fell off, you'd fall down into the chasm of despair where you would hurt You would be destroyed is what your fear would be. And you're saying, look, appreciate all this 
stuff about some word studies in the Bible and, and opened and the breast word in Genesis and Mark chapter 10 and, and what does it mean to be submissive, to arrange yourself, hupotasso, according to a larger design and to show the beauty, to revealing God, all that's good stuff, but I'm not leaving my cliff. And I don't blame you if that's the whole picture, but it's not the whole picture. There is a God And Jesus came for what central purpose? And they can answer that in a variety of ways, but I believe the central purpose for which Jesus came was to reveal God. He, has seen, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I came to glorify you, Father. I came to make you known. I want people to know the kind of God you are. You're a God of love. You're a God who forgives sinners. You're a God who, and I'm a God who, Jesus speaking, who is willing to be open to all the punishment that sin deserves, and I'll receive that into myself at the hands of sinful men. And in that particular process, he was saying, he was modeling what openness to advance the purposes of God means. And when we start getting a picture of the Trinity and how they relate and how they relate in the whole gospel story, we start getting a picture of that, we realize that they're a, they're a God of incredible love, and they have tied a rope around our waist, the rope of love. Question. As you're standing on top of the cliff of safety and refuse to leave it, are you loved? Yes or no? By God. Yes. Next question. Are you enjoying the love? No, because you aren't depending on it. You never know how much you believe in the strength of a rope until you're hanging by it over a cliff, C.S. Lewis. So if we're going to learn what it means, if women are going to learn what it means, men have the same thing going on in just a few minutes here, but if women are going to learn what it means to realize that in the core of their souls, there is a beauty that no other human being can destroy because it's a beauty that depends on God has come to forgive me, to indwell me, and listen to this, 2 Peter 1.4, I've become a participant in the divine nature. I wouldn't dare say that if I couldn't find a verse for it. I've become a participant in the same energy that motivates the Trinity in all that they do and the way they relate, and now that energy was within me, but I don't feel it. Oh, I, I feel my fear. I'm, I'm scared of if I got open and people would look and they wouldn't see any beauty. I'd be invisible. I guess his beauty is there theologically. I believe it. It's a doctrinal statement that I agree with, but I don't experience it. And I'm scared to death that if my boyfriend moved away from me or if my husband had an affair or if my dad never paid attention to me, that just confirms it. I don't have anything in me that's beautiful. Therefore, I'll manage my life. I'll handle things. I'm okay. What's your problem? And so you become either a, become, a, become a manager or a mannequin looking good on the outside, having no substance that gets revealed on the inside. So what has to happen? Well, to grow into femininity, what do you have to do? Jump off your cliff. God won't push you. He'll nudge you. He'll expose the suffering that you feel by living a managed life. And when the time comes that you're going to jump off your cliff, which, by the way, is not a one-time thing, it's a lifestyle, <laughs> you discover the ropes a lot longer than you had hoped. <laughs> and you break your leg. And it hurts. But now listen, 
Never use the phrase, it hurts like hell. You know why? It's theologically incorrect. You jump off your cliff and things go wrong, don't say, that hurt like hell. It never will because hell is the absence of God's presence. So what you need to say when you hurt bad is, that hurt like near hell, but never hurt like hell. (laughs) So what I'm encouraging you to do is to start thinking about how have you related as a woman to your husband, roommate, friends, children, in ways that way down deep the core energy beneath the way you relate is to manage things so you don't hurt. It's not feminine. <laughs> the old story occurs to me. <clears throat> we're, we're so committed to finding some way to feel better now and assuming that's the purpose of the Christian life. Why in Colossians 1 does Paul say, refers to Christ, he's the experience of glory or the hope, or the hope of glory? Mother Teresa went 50 years without ever experiencing the presence of God. He was with her, but she never felt him. But she was thirsty for him. Your thirst for God will sustain you more on the path of obedience than your experience of God. When the experience comes, celebrate it. Praise the Lord when you experience his presence. But when you don't, will you believe it's true? And will you continue to move into your femininity? Look to see the ways you're relating that honor your fear and deny your faith. If we were a small group sitting in a living room, I'd, I'd ask the ladies at this point, what are some things you need to do for cliff jumping? Well, let's talk about men. Now let's not. <laughs> Before we talk about men, let me do one more thing. I want to give you a, a definition of femininity. See if what I've said makes sense now in this definition. I'll, I'll just say it through twice. Don't, don't try to copy it down or whatever. Just see if it makes sense to you. Femininity. A deeply feminine woman is a woman. How would you finish the sentence? A deeply feminine woman, in God's eyes, why did God make us male and female? He made women to reveal something about God's character, the beauty of his invitational nature. So femininity is a woman who reveals the beauty of God's invitational nature. So it goes like this. A deeply feminine woman is a woman so at rest in God's delight in her undamageable beauty that she invites others to enjoy the beauty of God. 
by relating invitationally, not controllingly, openly, not guardedly, and courageously, not defensively. And her central purpose is not to have a good marriage. Her central purpose is not to have godly kids. Of course you want that. I do too. But your central purpose is do all things for the glory of God. So a deeply feminine woman is one whose purpose in her relational style is to encourage another to be consumed by God's beauty at any cost to herself. Now that takes some commitment. Men. Ah, I haven't got much time. I guess we're doing pretty well. Let's make a male and female. The word female, nekabah, means to be opened, to receive whatever advances, the pur- whatever advances the purposes of God. The word for male is a word that was used to describe an ancient Near East king, leader, who would have his assistants, much like our president has his secretary of defense, secretary of state, secretary of the treasury. Well, the old ancient Near East leaders, kings, would have their versions of assistants. And there was one particular assistant that the king would have who had one job, and his job was to remember what the king needed to be doing and to move toward the king to make sure he knew what his schedule was. The word for male in Genesis 127 is the word that was used to describe that cabinet official in an ancient Near East court. The word came to mean, with that etymology, the word came to mean one who remembers and moves. Femininity, one who invites with an openness, hupatasawing, arranging herself according to the larger design of advancing God's story. The word male means one who remembers what? One who remembers something (laughs) that allows him to move wherever he's good and doesn't take any risk. Not that at all. One who remembers and moves. The same word that's used for male in Genesis Genesis 127 is the same word that's used in Exodus 2, verses 23 and 24. The passage goes something like this, that Israel had been in slavery now for a long time, 400 plus years, and as their cry went up to God, we're told in Exodus 2 and verse 24, that God did four things. He heard their groaning. He remembered, same word as male in Genesis 127, he remembered his covenant. He looked on them with compassion and he moved. What a picture of masculinity. Masculinity had nothing to do with the size of your income, the breadth of your shoulders, how far you hit a golf ball, whether you're a physician or a truck driver or whatever you are. Masculinity has nothing to do with that. Guys are terrified because we're just not sure if we have what it takes. So we find out whatever we do have that can display itself in whatever, maybe a sense of humor, 
Maybe in our job, maybe in the money we make, maybe in the car we drive, maybe in the way we hit a tennis ball or a golf ball, personality, whatever it might be. But God, I believe, gives us a tremendous picture, a metaphor of masculinity, remembering and moving, Genesis 127, the next to 224, when he heard their groaning. We often say that women are more into relationships and men are more into achievement. At one level, I wouldn't buy that for a second. At the core of our souls, at the core of our souls, we're all relational beings because God is a relational being. If you believe in the Trinity, you believe final reality is a relationship. And if you and I, as male and female, bear the image of God, we are relational beings. So a man is every bit as much a relational being as a female, as a woman, and yet he's called to relate in a little different way than the woman He's called to hear groaning in another. He's called to hear his wife who's hurting. He's called to hear his child who's hurting. Let me tell you a little side story real quickly here. We have two sons, 42, almost 43, and 40. Our older son, Kep, has our, two of our grandchildren, our Josie, 13, and Jake, 11, and Cap's uh, a good guy. He had his struggles during his teenage years, very significant struggles during his teenage years. He got kicked out of a Christian university. Taylor University, did you ever hear that in Indiana? It's in the boondocks of Indiana. Chuck Colson said, send your kids to Taylor. It's 50 miles from the nearest sin. <laughs> it wasn't until our son got there. And God did a work in him, and I believe it was when he got kicked out that the Lord brought him to himself, and I believe at that point he became a Christian, but I hope he wouldn't mind my sharing this. I'll just say it very briefly, because it happened just a couple days ago. Um, Kep, uh, Kep wrote me a letter for Father's Day, and then he told me about it, told Rachel and I about it, and how a couple days ago he realized how he had been failing in his masculinity. He wasn't hearing the groaning, particularly in his daughter. And when she wouldn't do something that was right, he'd be on her. I told you to do that. Now, what's the matter with you? And he just began to see, I failed as a man. He told Rachel and I, he was on his face, just weeping. And he called a meeting of his family. And he apologized to his wife. He apologized to his daughter. He apologized to his son. And he said, I failed you, but not in some wimpy way. Not like, oh, I'm just so, I'm just so horrible. Will you please forgive me? Not that, but more like, I have failed you, but that's not who I am. I want to be a man, as a father, as a husband. We were kind of thrilled. Great movement. And I believe in a new way, he's hearing the groaning of his wife and his 13-year-old daughter and his 11-year-old son, who he's been pretty hard on. Why does a man not want to hear the groaning? Oh, well, I'll tell you why. Because we don't know what to do. I was in private practice for 10 years. You don't know how many times a client would come in to see me and share their deep struggles, and under my breath, never out loud, I would say to myself, this person needs professional help. <laughs> and I would try to reduce their problems to something I could handle. If I was into CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, I'd try to find their maladaptive cognitions that I could straighten out with my technique if they were 
uh, into repressed emotions. I'd try to work analytically and try to deal with it interpretively and whatever. But I would, try to, I would try to reduce their problem to something I could handle. It took me years to realize all they really wanted was for me to be present in my weakness, which requires courage. God heard their groaning. Men, do you hear the groaning and the people that you love? And then he remembered. God remembered his covenant. What are we to remember, guys? We're to remember our calling. What's our calling? Now, stay with us just for a minute. I want to use this projector one more time. If it's up here, why, why waste it? Let me write this out here and see if it makes some sense to you. I'm to remember, as a man, what I'm called to reveal about the nature of the relational God that I can reveal as a man more effectively than a woman can reveal. And a woman is called to reveal something about God that she can reveal more effectively, she's wired to do it, more effectively than a man can reveal. We're each called to reveal God. A woman is called to reveal the invitational beauty of God. What's a man called to reveal? Look at it this way. Let's talk about up here we have God's reality. That's the Trinity. The Father and Son relate. Let me give you a fancy word. Some of you might not know it. Perichoretically. The Father and Son relate perichoretically a word that was coined in the third century to help people in the church come alive. It, para, around, charesis, choretically, comes from dance. The idea is God dances around in the rhythm of a perfect dance where there's movement into an invitational reception and, and the Father loves His Son and the Son receives the love and the Son pours back His love and the Father receives that and they're dancing around together in this perfect parachoretic relationship and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of that relationship. St. John of the Cross says the Holy Spirit is the kiss of the Father and Son. Who's living inside of you right now? The Holy Spirit. In other words, the energy of God, the way God relates, is in me. I wish it was visible more often. But it's there. So here we have this paracretic God who looks down on us. Here's our reality. Here's our reality. And God sees us as having fallen, having sinned, having turned to him and say, we can manage life with or without you. If you want to help us manage our lives according to our plan, we're all for it. If you don't want to help us, then that's your problem. How hideous to talk like that to God, but that's what we do. And God says, I still love you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move into your neighborhood. My son the eternal second person of the Trinity, is going to become a human being, the incarnation. He is going to be with you. I've heard your groaning. I've heard your slavery. And I'm coming to be with you. And I'm going to come and die for you in the crucifixion. I'm going to be for you. I'm going to pay the price of your sins. And after I die, and I'm going to be resurrected And when I get resurrected, my spirit is going to be in you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be for you. I'm going to be in you. 
And then in the ascension, he becomes our high priest, and now he surrounds us. Draw a line right down here. And on this side, I believe we have the calling of a woman. On this side, we have the calling of a woman. I am going to invite you as I open myself. I want to be so intimate with you as you enter into me. My spirit will be in you, and the spirit is going to draw you to move yourself toward me, and I'm going to become your husband. I'm going to become your Lord. I'm going to become everything to you. I invite you into me, and as I go to be the high priest in the heavens, still a human being, but now fully visible as God, always God, of course, always God, now always man, and I'm going to serve as your high priest, and you're going to always be aware of my, of my, you're going to always have, if not aware, you're going to always have my presence. I'm going to surround you with my love. I'm going to nourish you with my, with my strength. You can come to me. You can boldly approach the throne of God to find grace to help in time of need. That's the woman's call. The man is to remember his call, to be with and to be for, to be with, to hear the groaning, And to remember his call. God heard their groaning and he remembered his call. Man, I forget that so easy. Because I got a tea time coming up. And I played decent golf. I feel pretty good about myself when I get a, used to be a 280 yard drive, now it's 170 feels pretty good to me nowadays. I'm doing a little better than that. But I feel good about myself when I'm doing something I'm good at. Sorry if Rachel's hurting. I'm not sure what to do. Do I hear the groaning? Do I remember my call to reveal the incarnational crucifixion relational style of God who is with, enters in, and pays the price for He heard their groaning, remembers his covenant, and he looks. Gentlemen, do you study your wives? Dwell with your wives according to knowledge? He heard their groaning, and he moved. He took action. He came down, the burning bush with Moses. He brought him out of slavery. Our God is an invitational God. Women, that's your calling. Our God is a moving God. Men, that's your calling. But we don't do it. What are we scared of? Well, a couple more minutes and I'll define masculinity for you and then we'll quit. Remember in Genesis... God came to Adam and said, there's a tree I don't want you to eat from. You can enjoy everything in the garden, but there's a tree. You must not eat from it. The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Now, he said that before Eve was created. Then Eve gets created, and Adam had to speak. He had to move toward his wife. And say, honey, before you were around, God told me something I got to pass on to you. A man moved into his wife, the beginnings of masculinity. 
The serpent then in Genesis 3 comes, and who do you talk to? Eve. You read a lot of the textbooks in Genesis, commentaries, and you hear sentences like this. The serpent was clever. He came to Eve when Adam wasn't around. It's not what the Bible says. Because it says that Eve, when she took a bite of the fruit, she turned to her husband, who was with her, and that whole story, pericope it's called, the whole story is a story where whatever is true of one part of the story is true of the whole particular narrative. So he was with her the entire time. I've talked to several Hebrew scholars who have validated the thought that Adam was there the whole time. The serpent was tempting Eve. The serpent was saying things like, hey, did God really say that Adam get it right? That you can eat of the trees of the garden? No, God never said that. God said you can eat of all the trees in the garden. Adam should have said, no, wait a minute, Eve. God, look at what we got here. Adam didn't say a word. You could eat of the trees of the garden, but that tree in the middle of the garden, no, wait a minute, the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. Eve, hang on here. Remember what I said? Adam didn't say a word. And Eve was saying, well, we can eat of the trees in the middle of the garden, but we, we can't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or touch it. God never said that. Wouldn't have been wise to touch it, but God didn't say it. And Adam didn't say a thing. Because in the day you eat of it, you're going to die. No, God said you will surely die. Satan and Eve minimized the consequence of sin. And Adam didn't say a word the whole time. Why did he not remember and move? Gentlemen, why do you and I back away from intimacy and relationship and retreat into our spheres of competence? If women are scared of invisibility, I think men are scared of weightlessness. I don't have the weight. If I had a chance to talk with each of you guys, I think we could find all sorts of illustrations of this, but an illustration of something like this, I think all of us feels a little bit, in some measure, like the teenage kid who finally got his driver's license and taking his girlfriend out to dinner somewhere, and he's all excited. And he gets to the restaurant, and he didn't realize the expense of the meals there. And the bill comes, and it's 70 bucks, and he's got 30 bucks in his wallet. How's he feel? That's how us guys feel when we hear our wives, our kids, our friends, when we remember our covenant and say, I don't have the weight to do it, when we look deeply into what's happening and saying, I don't have a clue what to do, and we don't want to move into action, so we move into our sphere of competence. Wouldn't it be something if men could look at women and say, I'd, I'd like to move into you? I'd like to get to to know you as brother and sister in Christ, as husband with wife. I really want to know you because I cherish what's alive in you as a woman. And I want to remember by covenant that I I want to move in and to validate the beauty of your soul and to validate the voice with which you speak. Wouldn't it be something if men understood the woman's terror and moved accordingly? Wouldn't it be something if women understood men's terror and became more invitational than contentious and vexing, and jumped off the cliff a little bit more often. Let me give you a definition of masculinity. A deeply masculine man moves into his relationships and responsibilities in that order. A deeply masculine man moves into his relationships and responsibilities with no controlling fear of how others might respond. Of course we're scared, but your fear doesn't have to control you. 
with no controlling fear of how others might respond or what life may throw at him. And he moves with one ruling passion to identify, awaken, and restore the desire for God and others. That's your calling, guys. And we move with confidence that we've been given the weight of impact no matter how inadequate, how confused, how weak, or how frightened we feel or how little impact we see. Let's make human beings who can relate like us. And when they relate like us, they can reveal what we're like. Let's make them male and female, Nekabah and Zakar. Let's make them women who can be open to receive whatever the advances God's purposes in a relationship. Not contentious and vexing, but gentle and quiet, invitational, open, not closed and managing and manipulative. No, not that at all. And let's make men who hear the struggles in the world and have the courage to move and to realize that their impact comes from God, whether they have talents or not. In their weakness, God's strength is made known. What would it be like if men and women came alive as men and women? I think you might have better marriages. I think we'd have better kids, maybe. But most importantly, we'd be bringing God some glory and inviting others to take a look at the God we serve. That's our calling. Father, use these few comments said so inadequately. So much more needs to be said, so much I don't understand at all. But whatever has come out of my mouth that has been energized by your spirit and faithful to your word, I pray that we'll hear it that I'll hear it even as I talk about it. That's our prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Folks, I think we're supposed to have a little Q&A time. I know it's 8.40, till, and we're going to usually stop at 8.45, but I was told to go till midnight. <laughs> um, or to 9 o'clock, maybe. We'll stop promptly at 9. If anybody has any comments, questions, thoughts, angry rebuttals, violent difficulties, whatever, <laughs> I'd love to hear any kind of interaction you have. Tell me... Let's start with this. If anybody just wants to shout out and talk a little bit here, there's mics if you want to come up here, but we'll not worry about informal here. But I would like to ask you, as you walk out the door in just a couple of minutes, you drive home, you go to bed, turn out the lights, what do you think might linger from the time we spent here together? What, 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 what one thought? In the last hour and a half, whatever it's been, I've said, what, 30,000 sentences? I don't know. I'm told I talk fast. That's not true. You people just listen too slow. That's the issue. But I've said 30,000 sentences, whatever, and maybe just one or two were designed by the Spirit of God for you. But what did you hear that you might linger with, that you might think about as you walk out of here tonight? You think maybe it might linger a little bit longer than just tonight. Tell me what you have. What'd you linger? Yes, ma'am, in the back. You know, I wonder, could we get a mic? I really can't hear you. Is that? Yeah, just to take it back to her, if you would, that'd be great. Right over here in this in the other, other aisle there. Yeah, there she is. Great. Thank you. I don't want to miss what you have to say, and my hearing isn't the best. When you get past 30, your hearing goes, I'm told. I wanted to thank you because um, I've been walking through a lot of stuff, and the Lord brought me here, and I know closer. the Holy Spirit work through you to answer so many things that are going on in my life. So I had a lot of questions answered, and so thank you for being obedient 
Oh. Um, also, two things. First was the cliff thing, because I've been doing that. I've been so hurt, um, even in church environment and ministry, that I was on a cliff. And now um, God is healing me and delivering me and making me so I can trust him more to step back out again, which is how I got here. <laughs> oh, well, praise the Lord. Thank you. And secondly, the hearing. Um, I haven't felt heard. And so... Um, you haven't felt gonna, heard? Is that what you said? Yeah. Heard, yeah. Like, I was just in a relationship. Um, I just got out of it. It wasn't good. But um, that was part of why it wasn't good, because he would never hear me. And he did what you were talking about. He'd always um, go back to his job and his surfing, because that's what he's real good at. Because it's like you said, he didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> but God is good, and he does. So um, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, Anybody else? Just one or two more. If you have other comments, that I'd love to hear. What uh, what might you linger with as you walk out of here tonight? What did you hear? That as a man, I need to hear the groan. As a man, I need to hear the groan. And as you said that, you put your hand on the woman next to you. I presume is your wife. Very good. As a man, I need to hear the groans. Yeah. And does it make sense to you that that sometimes can be difficult? Yeah. Appreciate that. Great sentence. I heard somebody else. Yeah. Can I tweak your sentence a little bit? The rope is already tied around your waist and God has made the knot. You need to jump off the cliff. <laughs> and when you jump off the cliff, the rope will hold. And I think I hear what you're saying. You're making a wonderful point that it's very easy when we jump off the cliff to get so scared we clamber back up again. And that doesn't do any good. So yeah, hang on to God as he's hanging on to you. And then you'll become more confident in who you are. You know, one of my dad's, the, the verse that dad gave me when I, the first Bible he ever gave me years and years ago, obviously, he put in the fly leaf, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 14, 15, 16, that right in there where he said, um, Paul's talking to Timothy and he says, I want you to continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of. That verse has haunted me. I've learned a lot over my years. I've read the Bible a lot. I think a lot. I read a lot. I, you know, we've all learned a whole bunch of things. But what have I been convinced of? What do I believe when my night is the darkest? And folks, I'm prone to dark nights. And when I get in my dark nights, part of me just wants to go, <laughs> to just about everything. It's in the darkest night that the morning star shines the brightest. What is it that I deeply believe that I can't let go of when I feel like I failed the worst and my spirits are lower than they've ever been? That's when the rope holds. Thank you for that. I think I saw a hand over here someplace. Yes, sir. Need to hear the groaning and study your wife more. And I jump off a cliff and act a little bit. Yeah, good for you. Praise the Lord. You know, is it possible the Spirit's been doing something tonight? Could that be? And do you understand that if there was no visible movement of God's spirit tonight that I need to go home and say, God, have I been faithful to you? Am I willing to keep on moving? You know what my biggest struggle is? Well, I've got about 20 options there. <laughs> but the struggle that bedevils me the most is a sense of futility. I think God has given me a vision of what's supposed to be. 
and I fall short every day. And I want so badly to lift up, and I want so badly to see visible impact in, in the church, in God's community. I want us to be an alternative community that we bring the kingdom of heaven to earth and relate in a way that people say, I don't get you people. And I travel to lots of churches, and I, I, I see so little that reflects all that God has in mind. And part of me just says, I'm done with it all. Why bother? And that's not revealing God at all. I've got to move whether I see anything happen or not. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes by Lewis, whichever quote I'm giving is my favorite quote. (laughs) If I have a good quote, I give it to Lewis, I figure he probably said it. (laughs) But he did say this. He said, put first things first, And second things are thrown in. Put second things first, and you lose both first and second things. Know what that means to me? Have I been masculine tonight, standing up here? Well, it depends. Have I been trying to find some way to get you to laugh occasionally so I can feel good about myself? Then I'm an idolater. Am I going to walk out of here feeling good only to the degree that I can see the Spirit visibly moving in people's lives? All those are second things. Now, second things are wonderful. Don't misunderstand. Worship them and you're an idolater. But first things first. I want to be a little bit like God. and Reveal something of what he's like. And if he grants them second things along the way, like a good marriage, praise the Lord. I like it a lot. I like her a lot. Our kids are both walking with God. I'm so thrilled about that. But those are second things. Suppose we get back to our room tonight and we get a phone call and things are bad. Do I quit? First, things are still in place. By the way, that's the, really the theme of tomorrow in the 66 Love Letters Conference. I wrote this book called 66 Love Letters from God to You. And it's a conversation with God about every book of the Bible in which I present myself as I am and say, God, I'm in a bad mood. I got two nasty letters today and I'm supposed to read Obadiah for my daily devotions. I don't want to read Obadiah. What's the point? And I have God responding, well, Obadiah is important for you right now, Larry, and here's why. And I wrote that book primarily for my two daughters-in-law, two wonderful godly women who have no Christian background, um, who didn't learn the Bible in Sunday school at all. And Kimmy, our older daughter-in-law, went to chapel service with me some, a couple of years ago, a number of years ago, where I was speaking at a chapel service at our university. And, um, and after I spoke, we went out to lunch together, and Kimmy said to me, Pop-Pop, that's my name, Pop-Pop, You referred to a verse in Hosea, a verse in Galatians, a verse in Jude. How did you know those verses were there? And I looked at her and said, you want to know your Bible, don't you? And she burst into tears. I wrote the book for her and for Leslie, her other daughter-in-law, two wonderful young ladies who don't know their Bibles very well. They're learning. But I wanted people to hear the story of God, the love story of God that is told from Genesis to Revelation, a story that's bigger than me that I can join and be part of as a man, you as a man or a woman, and that's our calling, that's our privilege, and that's our joy. Jonathan Edwards said that the entire purpose of the gospel is to share the happiness of Jesus with his followers. What's the happiness of Jesus? Was Jesus happy in Gethsemane? My answer is yes. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.